When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I am your host, David Breer, CEO here at 11FS. Thanks for downloading this podcast. If you like what you hear, why not recommend it to a friend? This week, we're talking about Creas getting 50 million of fresh funding to power up their embedded finance offering. HSBC are fined 57 million for failing adequate protection of customer deposits, which I thought was a little bit harsh. And if you are sent somebody else's salary, would you get it back? Maybe if you're Spider-Man, but maybe not if you're somebody else, I think was probably the conclusion. We get into all of this and much more on today's show. Hello and welcome to episode 823 of Fintech Insider. I'm David Breer, Group CEO here at 11FS. I am joined this week on Fintech Insider News by three guests who are here to break down this week's biggest news stories in fintech and financial services. If you hear that I'm a little bit out of breath, I have just run five floors upstairs and five floors downstairs just to get a drink. So I do apologize if I'm feeling a bit breathy, but uh, we'll see how this goes, hey? Uh, first, a big hello to my co-host, Rachel Pandian, who is the Ventures Product Lead at 11FS. How's it going, Rachel? Fun week? Uh, yeah, it was going really well. Super fun week. We're actually in the middle of a design sprint with one of our clients and ventures, um, doing some really good stuff, all virtual. It's amazing just how much you can stretch the potential of a virtual post-it note. Um, but yeah, going well. It's a weird one, that, isn't it? Do, you know, so many things are now virtual in that space. But yeah, I mean, I feel like the post-it people must be putting, being put out of business at this stage. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's that. But then it, when it comes to Crazy 8s, we're still very much drawing on paper. So I think that says more about potentially my drawing skills than um, the tools we're using. We do put the crazy in crazy eights as well, right? So, uh, <laughs> uh, do you know what? I had a really fun, myself and Jason went for a really fun lunch with a CEO of a UK bank today, which was very entertaining. And I feel like will lead to something that we'll probably talk about in the podcast at some point as well. So we'll uh, we'll come back to that one foreshadowy, foreshadowy. But uh, but yeah, it's going to be good and fun. Uh, we're also delighted to welcome back Doug McKenzie, who is the Chief Content Officer over at FinTech Finance. Uh, welcome back to the show, Doug. How are you doing? Thank you very much, David and uh, Rachel. Uh, yeah, really good. Um, just come off uh, moderating all day at the um, the Rise um, session for the FinTech Fringe and uh, really excited to uh, to be a part of this, uh, you know, the 823 podcast. Very cool. And for anybody who's been living under a rock, what, what what's a FinTech finance? What do you guys do? Yeah, we um, we host documentaries and shows where we understand challenges in finance um, and get tech players, the banks, all on the same episode um, so we can kind of hash it out and find out who's got the best solution. Very cool. Not just making me eat hot wings and Ali be sick. On the, like you do other like serious things. Well, sometimes well, right? we do serious things, but yeah, even then, there's you know there's probably going to be a tinge of hot sauce flying about somewhere. Yeah, you've always got to make it fun, haven't you? <laughs> uh, and finally, it is great to have you with us. I was joking a second, uh, and Anil, so Anil Stoko, who's the CEO of uh, Kriya. 
Am I saying that right, Anil? Yes, that's right. I mean, uh, I'm a, I was saying to the guys beforehand, big fan, like a serial entrepreneur. Like, I don't think the, uh, the, the buildup of your background and everything that you've achieved could be, you know, much more impressive. So uh, it is an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Tell us a little bit more about your latest startup and uh, what you've been doing since you were last on the podcast. Well, great to be here, David. It's been ages since we last uh, spoke. Um, and actually, we rebranded. So it's not a completely new company. We were called Market Finance. Uh, we rebranded to Korea. Um, and I can tell you a little bit about why. Um, but uh, we, yeah, we've been, I've been sort of doing this for over a decade now. Well, we've been helping small businesses access finance. We're now doing B2B payments. And, and yeah, so, you know, we've been here since the beginning of the whole fintech scene in London. Very, very cool. Very cool. And it's um, it's amazing, as you say, I mean, we'll get into the, the rebranding potentially in a little while, but it's it's amazing to see as the beachhead expands or as the, the opportunities are there to do it. But let's let's talk about that as we get on in it. Anyway, let's jump into the news. All right. So the, the first story that we had this week was was you guys, which again, foreshadowing you foreshadowing. Uh, and it's weird. It feels like the two worlds colliding because we picked this up on fintech finance which is this it's just <laughs> just fortuitous isn't it quite frankly i mean i love a shout out in that regard no, no. Yeah. but uh, <laughs> uh but you guys are upgrading your funding facility to power over a billion in payments over the next two years which is pretty damn impressive so b2b payments fintech korea has secured 50 million of funding from long-standing debt and equity partner viola group uh, they will use this funding to power up their embedded payments and credit solutions named pay now and pay later pretty self-explanatory. You're sort of going with the say what you see type the naming approach, which I, I do appreciate. It makes it much more easy to understand, doesn't it? But uh, new features will include online checkouts, offline orders, offering features like pay in 30 or 60 days or split payments over several months. Additionally, Korea will now be able to support exporters of both USD and European uh, Euro payments, rather, uh, unlocking 45 different markets for their users. Uh, Anil, great to have you with us. Um, tell us a little bit more about this. Tell us about what you're going to do with the funding and um, tell us a little bit more about the the plans that you've got for the company over the next couple of years. Yeah, sure. So we've been in and around B2B payments, invoice finance, SME credit for the last 12 years. Um, and coming out of COVID, what we saw was that the whole B2B transactions, B2B volume, B2B payments was starting on a journey of moving from being offline to online. And we've obviously seen this shift a lot in consumer. So if you think about the Stripes, the Adians, the Klarna's, you know, they've just made it effortless for consumers to make payments, you know, get buy now, pay later on their mobiles when they're buying a t-shirt. Um, B2B is kind of 10 years behind. It's still very clunky. It's still very offline. But we are just seeing, you know, through COVID, people started to realize hey, I want my B2B experience to be exactly the same as my B2C experience. Um, and we were kind of just really well placed as a company, taking our knowledge of how to you know, fund small businesses, how to sort of understand transactions from big companies to small companies and small companies to big companies. So we were sort of really there to sort of say, okay, why don't we take advantage of this? Why don't we build technology? We have all the expertise in-house, but let's make that available through an API, let companies digitize their checkout process, offer buy now, pay later for bigger B2B transactions. Uh, and that's kind of what prompted us to, to double down on this. We rebranded, it's growing really fast. Um, and lots of uh, you know, large wholesalers, big businesses are thinking about how do they get better at giving companies different options at checkout. 
That's very cool. Talk, talk to us a little bit more about the rebrand then. What was the, what was the, was this a sort of a Mondo to Monzo vibe? Was there a, was there an Italian model company suing you or something like uh, the rumors <laughs> of the other one? But what's the, uh, what's the thinking? No, I think, you know, obviously being a company that's been around, I guess there was like, there was kind of a positioning because um, market finance and our previous company had been known to sort of really service SMEs and we were kind of moving up into serving big enterprises. You know, we got Halfords, we just signed Halfords as a, as a big uh, client of ours. And we wanted to sort of just coming out of COVID really cement our new vision and our new identity. And I think there was also the kind of practical thing that market finance was a really long word. So it didn't like, <laughs> it didn't like fit in the buttons, you know, we were like having to condense it to MF and people didn't really understand that. So Korea was uh, able, we were able to, uh, to get that to look really, really cool on a, on a checkout button. Um, yeah, I think um, I think Prince definitely cornered the MF route, and it was standing for something different, wasn't <laughs> it? But uh, uh, but that's uh, that's an interesting one, isn't it? And as you say, I mean, you sort of you think people like you know TransferWise moving to Wise as your purpose expands and the things that you're looking to achieve, the the services, the market you service. It's uh, it's almost a, I guess as the company grows up and solves more problems for more people, then it, it gives you the opportunity to sort of think about a different name. How'd you come up with the name then? Because that I mean, I was. Jason, uh, I think he named Starling Monzo and Eleven FS. So he's like a he's like a namer <laughs> aficionado. But uh, it's one of those. Uh, it's always quite a difficult thing to uh, to give birth to a name, isn't it? Oh, it's really, really hard. It's really hard. Basically, there's so many crypto companies that have taken every name. Uh, you know, there's like <laughs> we, it was so frustrating. Like every name I wanted to do, it was told by my legal team. You know, we can't do that. We can't do that. Um, so then we had to start looking at words that were kind of non-English. And uh, I was kind of just browsing through sans randomly Sanskrit words uh, and Kriya stood out because um, it sounded good, but also had a great meaning. It means sort of being in a state of flow and you know, com completing action. There's even like a Kriya yoga. So like it f we felt like this was great because all we're doing is trying to smoothen transactions, you know, let, let businesses get on with what they want to do and get the financial friction out of the way. So kind of like the meaning behind Korea. Um, so that's how we found it. And I, I love that concept of flow because I think when we we talk about small businesses all the time and it's about, oh, you know, like helping them digitize like their accounting. But this is, I think this is the other side of it. Like small businesses still rely on other businesses and no one, everyone forgets about the wholesaler in, in this point of view. And that's why I think it's really important that when we think about providing for small businesses through digitized services. This is a really important piece because cash flow is, yes, it's about the customers small businesses serve, but also about then the, them as customers and who they're interacting with and how they can get cash flow from customers to the wholesaler back down the flow. So yeah, back down the flow. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I really like what you've gone for there. Yeah, no, it's cool. Look, I've met so many entrepreneurs, so many small businesses, and they're all passionate about what they're building. But like things like finance and payments and handling invoices just gets in the way of like them doing what they love. So, so we kind of want to make that smoother. How are you finding that sort of transition from customer type as well? I mean, I've seen to sort of B2B customers, that's a sort of a different set of people with different sets of requirements. Uh, is that uh, an easy transition? No, it, uh, look, it's really interesting because going and selling our solutions to a Halfords or to a you know very big FTSE 250 business, you have to manage 
I mean, obviously it takes a lot longer. You're managing a lot more stakeholders. There's a lot, there's a bigger process. I mean, you guys must know this from dealing with, with banks. Um, yeah. Procurement is fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, but obviously when you win them, it's very exciting because you can do a lot. We also have been really interested to see that there's so many manual processes that still go on in these big companies you know just to take like you know halfers for example you, they're known for cars engine you know car parts cars um cycle to work bicycles that's what they're kind of known for but then they have this like big team doing financial operations right so they kind of run this kind of financial mini financial institution in their company and so being able to sort of see and help them automate digitize and sort of improve some of those processes is, is going to be super exciting yeah. I mean, it's the ultimate, isn't it? If you can get uh, great products with gigantic distribution potential, then uh, that's always going to be a, a good place to be. I mean, Doug, sort of bringing you into this one a little bit, I mean, the B2B space, I mean, I've been saying this for years, and it's like the B2B space is far more interesting than the B2C space, because essentially, it's that underpinning fabric of the industry, isn't it? And uh, that really feels like where the, the revolution really is. And the, the scale involved as well, once you go enterprise and business to business and, you know, to an, your point, Anil, the fact that you're dealing with organizations as large as I can imagine the largest DIY organization in the whole of the United Kingdom, all the way down to sole traders, um, you know, you're just the market size for that must be so exciting and but then also it you know impacts you know the amount of work you've got to do but yeah when you look at that kind of scale of business to business operations you know it's not as glamorous i guess you could say but it's far more exciting in terms of what you can actually do for these businesses especially as you said as well with halfords having that mini kind of financial services team because they're in looking at embedded finance they're looking at these these buy now pay later elements and so suddenly you go from an organization that has no clue of what it wants to offer to suddenly you can take them through that journey. So that must be such an exciting position to be in. Definitely. By our rough maths, we think that the B2B market is kind of eight times bigger than B2C. Wow. So, you know, that gives you that gives you kind of a roughly, and as you said, it's less, it's less glamorous, you know, you know, everyone knows sort of Miss Selfridge or Topshop or River Island because they walk down the high street, but you know, there's, and, and, um, and so, but there's so many B2B companies, supply chains that people don't just are not aware of. And if you talk to David Barton Grimley um, about embedded finance, which he, he would love to talk to anyone about, he, he specifically, you know, it is a little bit boring looking at the very like classic embedded finance solutions like that. It's kind of done now. I'm reticent to say that because someone will tell me it's not, but distribution and like that, I think that's the next evolution for embedded finance and how we how it scales into something actually truly differential in the market and i think b2b is the only place for that for that to really hit its potential yeah i think i think it's interesting i think in a financial services space it feels products are you know but actually i mean anil as you're finding actually the partnerships that you strike when you go through procurement with organizations who are not necessarily massively au fait with financial services you know uh, you're being procured into a partnership that you're working with them to help them be successful. So it's, it, it it sort of changes the dynamic of really what they're procuring, doesn't it? Particularly in large organizations where it's not their, um, you know, their standard thing that they're doing. But it can be massively impactful for them in their value chain, but massively impactful for you as well, which is um, super exciting. Yeah, exactly. And we're, you know, just to give you a few examples, we, we've learned that big corporates, when they sign up small business buyers, they don't really authenticate or check them or kind of underwrite them in a structured way. And then 
you know, that means that they can't offer them the best payment options or pay later options. And that means they can't collect money at the end and it involves really, so it's like, you know, the full life cycle has to, we can, we can help on the full life cycle. So, so yeah, that's, that's interesting. But yeah, no, it's with this, um, that it knows, is the KYB element yeah, on that. Exactly. You know, it truly is so end to end that you can end up giving them a better view of their own, you know, what, you know, um, sorry, the procurement procurement flows than they had already. I find that absurd that they would leave that up to chance and it's taken you guys to come in and be like, look, we can show you far more insightful information. Yeah, well, I guess it's not up to, ch it's not strictly up to chance in the sense that they're, no. <laughs> they're, doing, they're doing like, they're obviously, but it's, it is quite, you know, it's quite manual and it can be improved um, for sure. But but anyway, this this news we announced this week was exciting because we we raised this debt facility, which powers all our pay later and uh, means that we can really push on and, and help. And the, and the economic times that we live in, it's kind of a, it's 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 very well needed, right? Because lots of small businesses want to buy stuff and pay later once they get paid. So it's kind of helping in this kind of uh, tougher economic environment as well. Yeah, I mean, all the way doing uh, up and down that value chain, it, it really uh, it helps uh, make the money move quicker for everybody in that piece, doesn't it? Which is uh, which is fantastic. How are you finding um, on the as you say with the the rebrand and the marketing marketing to a B2B market is a bit different, again, from marketing to a B2C one, isn't it? You know, there's, uh, uh, you know, different means and different ways of accessing that. Is that a, a new skill set to sort of uh, muster as well? Definitely. We've, we, we've uh, kind of completely had to reconfigure our commercial teams, what we, what, you know, how we outreach, how we get in touch with people, thought leadership. Uh, people want to read more about the latest trends of what, what's going on. Uh, you know, consultative selling <laughs> to to larger enterprises. So that's been a that's been an interesting learning curve. And we're very early in the cycle, so we know we have to like educate a lot of people, and they might not transact or do something for for many years. But but uh, we think we're on the beginning of a big big wave in the next sort of five years. Yeah, I completely agree. It's uh, as we say, it's the changing of the fabric of financial services, and uh, I think that, as you say, that sort of four or five year window, there's going to be a a lot more new players kind of in that B two B space, which is uh, super duper exciting. But congratulations again. We better move on though, because there's a lot of other stuff that happened this week. All right, uh, one that we uh, we didn't pick up on fintech finance. There are other publications. We do read some other things <laughs> as well. Finextra, we picked this one up on. Uh, Mastercard bids to kill passwords with a new biometric service. Uh, Mastercard. Is is rolling out a new biometric authentication service, which it claims will make it easier for businesses to integrate biometrics for users logging into apps or websites or making purchases online. This is based on the latest Fido standards, which uses passkeys stored on users' devices and locked only with biometric data, such as fingerprint or facial recognition. Mastercard insists that it is both more secure and easier than traditional passcode authentication, adding that up to 80% of data breaches are due to lost or stolen passwords. However, this comes in the wake of Revolut's class action lawsuit after claims they mishandled their customers' biometric data. So, I mean, it's an interesting one. Biometrics, there's a lot of pros and cons. When you lose it, you really lost a lot of stuff, haven't you? But, uh, um, I mean, how uh, new is this? I mean, there's a lot of kind of biometric authentication things built into laptops and iPads and iPhones and all sorts of stuff. So, I mean, Rachel, what do you reckon? Is this a, is this a new, new thing? Or is this something that's just a kind of an evolving trend? I think it's more MasterCard making a statement of intent. I don't think exactly what they're doing here is brand new. What I'd be really interested to see is how 
they, as MasterCard, if they're choosing to step into biometrics, how they can tackle the flip side of this. Because on, on one side, passwords, yep, data breaches, biometrics, deep fakes. Like on Fido, I was reading an article earlier, like um, the reported deep fakes of biometrics has gone up by 31 times in a bet, like 20, 22 to 2023, something like that. So I think that it's, it is true, like passwords are a little bit old. I actually don't remember this laptop password. So if it ever tries to lock me out, I'm always like, I have to go <laughs> find a poster on my phone. Like, it's just like, it, you know, it's you don't remember all the different passwords or the different iterations where you put a capital letter in one place and, <laughs> and an exclamation in the other. And so I, I do think it's important. And I loved when Strong Customer authentication came in and it was something you have something you know all of all of that new take on security that evolved but now we're also facing new security challenges and so if this is mastercard's intent to move towards biometrics it's also important that they're stepping up that the their fraud and security measures in, in hand as well mm. is it is it maybe innovative that it's mastercard doing this i don't mean i don't mean like mastercard does a thing and therefore it's cool i mean like actually uh, you know, a gigantic organization that's known for doing something else using the rails and capabilities that they've got to then add more value. You know, what, what do you think, Doug? I mean, f one element I keep hearing from a lot of payment providers um, is that they want to start integrating biometric technology into the cards. Now, I don't think at the scale they're looking at currently, it's profitable, but suddenly you get one of the largest card providers behind it. And, you know, the thought of having, you know, biometrics within your card overriding that kind of third part of factor authentication because at the point of time you have the card you have your biometrics would be huge but that's obviously the in-person element do, do you um, do you mean sorry one of those because uh, they've been around occasionally they come out and i'm like is that an april <laughs> fools because like you <laughs> yeah. know like we've got a card reader built into a credit card and i'm like exactly what problem are we solving there you know so uh yeah, well, you, you think that problem, but then, uh, you know, I was speaking with Andrew Schickel from the FIDO Alliance himself, and uh, he was mentioning how one of the, and, and this is kind of now looking onto the kind of consumer and merchant side of things, they were looking at how, I think it was like 15% of people, whenever they go to check out, forget their password, and then don't then check out because they've just forgotten their password. And I can't imagine being, you know, a small business owner, you know, one of, you know, Anil's customers potentially, and, you know, and that happening. So it's amazing to think how, um, you know, that's, that would be effectively removed from, you know, enhancing this this biometric element. Um, and I imagine, you know, that groundswell from having the merchant support would be absolutely huge. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Where where does, uh, you know, because I mean, we're talking about authentication in a separate sort of sense than we are uh, identification, whereas actually, yeah. and it's interesting almost to, uh, when you sort of start thinking about where do these things really sit within a stack, you know, because actually is, are we talking about identity and therefore does identity sit at a operating system level within all of the things that we're doing, whether it's your phone or your laptop or your iPad or, or whatever, or does it sit within a transactional flow at a browser level in those things? And it's it's interesting what's the most... I know there's always pros and cons and people have got different opinions based on the company that they work for, I imagine. But, um, but it's interesting whether we do need, therefore, a, a central identity capability. I know... Uh, you know, the UK public are not too keen on it whenever they've been asked to vote on it. But, you know, different countries have taken very different approaches. And that then facilitates removing a lot of these problems, doesn't it? Because you can very quickly confirm you are who you are because this central body says you are, you know. 
Um, Do you think the only way to change the, where the liability lies and, you know, will the public finally embrace it if they become liable for potential fraud or, you know, for instance, if they've made a, a fraudulent transaction and there then actually the bank just turns around and says, well, look, we used, you didn't want to use this kind of authentication. So actually we can't fulfill your, your fraud claim, for instance. Do you think that would then you know, change the dialogue to finally having ID cards in the UK? I don't know. I think, um, I mean, sample size of us four on this podcast, right? So this is this is not statistically valid here. But uh, I mean, I'd be fine having an ID card. Like if it actually might, I, I always sort of go, um, people sort of go, uh, would you like a central government to have your data? No, but they have all that already. It's called the NHS. Like that's all there, you know, you know. But actually, would you like that data to be used to your advantage to make it easier for you to do stuff? then yes, you know, and I, I almost kind of think the positioning of these things, not, I'm not saying don't anybody go is like, so you just think I should trick people into it. No, that's mm. not what I'm saying. But I think actually you've got to show people what the real advantages of these things are. Uh, and then sometimes, you know, I just have to make my kids eat their vegetables. You know what I mean? Like, uh, so sometimes I think for the greater good of all of these things take, you know, billions of pounds of uh, potential fraud out of it or lost revenue for SMEs. It feels like this just should be something the government should be mandating and building. Yeah, well, interestingly, um, some emerging markets or some, you know, other countries, I was, I think I went, pre-COVID, I went to India and someone was showing me how they could send money through WhatsApp. You know, it was just like there's basically WhatsApp linked to their mobile phone, which linked to their sort of central ID, which linked to their bank account. And, you know, people were just sending money, money to each other on WhatsApp. And I was kind of like, I was really amazed by it. And it would not happen here because... We couldn't even, you know, legally get that to work or there was no like, so I think that you see it in some emerging markets that they're kind of leapfrogging and removing this friction to, to trade, to business, to doing, to, to, to making payments. And yeah, we shouldn't, we shouldn't get left behind. There's still too much friction, right? In making these uh, payments. Yeah. And it, and it's, um, I think the idea that, I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Uh, and when you sort of talk about that stack, you know, if we build this capability in at a MasterCard level, then actually it only solves for, you know, 30% or 40% or whatever, you know? Yeah. Whereas actually, does it need to sit at a, you know, a more primitive level in terms of it being something that's available to everybody or available to all channels to be, you know, truly beneficial, you know? The way I identify myself at the pub shouldn't be any different to the way I identify myself to a website of some description to buy a thing or whatever, you know? Um, so uh, I see you raising your eyes, Doug. It wasn't anything nefarious. <laughs> Don't... Uh, Cast dispersions. But I think it's, you know, similar to what we talked about before, it's the distribution point. There is that end state where we we do have to think of a more standardized solution. Like all of these are just like hacks by private companies to be like, hey, we don't have it in, in our infrastructure as a country right now. So here's the next step forward. I do think it's, you know, there's emerging... I, the emerging markets that are embracing some of these new technologies. I had a really interesting debate with Jason around like freedom versus safety and like all of the things that come with that for like, for example, in Saudi, like there are some pretty interesting restrictions, but also like if someone tried to sexually harass me, like police are going to come for them. And so the safety that I have that comes with that, whereas in the UK, if like, I don't know, like it's not taken as seriously when you when you have issues like that, which is an anecdotal tangent. All, all to say, I think there are some liberties or freedom in this country that we have that means that we don't have some of these sweeping technologies which could offer some benefit, but are we, are we set up and the expectations of consumers to have a say in 
so many things like should Scotland be independent? Uh, I think it means that some of these innovations are going to, we do have to lean on the private sector to drive the change forward for now at least. Yeah, but uh, but I guess there's been there's been attempts, haven't there? There was sort of a, uh, like a, weird like tender process that took place didn't they where there was like mm. Barclays are going to do an identity thing and it was like that just never happened did it you know what I mean like so I don't know sometimes I think the government does have to step in um, but uh, I know there's a bunch of people listening to this go shouting <laughs> like yeah but blockchain there's a resolution and you know <laughs> then you can revert <laughs> access and blah 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 but there's other stuff to talk about so we're going to move on I'm just saying <laughs> alright on that note we're going to take a quick break back in a minute Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, folks, welcome back to the show. Before we get back into the second half of the news, a note to go and check our most recent FinTech Insider Insights show. In this episode, we look at how the big tech is becoming a big player in banking. And as the technology becomes more central in our relationships with financial services, big tech will only have a more critical role to play in the future of the industry that we love. Our own Ross Gallagher and Kate Moody are joined by an expert panel, including Dave Birch. I oh, mean, we really should have brought up Dave Birch when we were talking about identity a minute ago, shouldn't we? <laughs> Paul Worthington, the former public policy manager at Meta and FinTech Insider OG, Sam Maul, also a former account executive for Google to talk about this one. We're going to be discussing exactly what the future holds for big tech in finance. So go check out that episode now. It is just one above the one you're listening to, which is good. All right, let's get back onto the show then. So next up, we found uh, a piece over in American Banker, which is Nova Credit helps Ukrainians in the UK, US and Canada get credit. Nova is partnering with Credit Info to provide access to credit to Ukrainians in the UK, US and Canada who have fled uh, due to the war. Nova Credit takes the credit history from bureaus in migrants' home countries to create credit scores for lenders in other countries. The new partnership will translate credit cards from Credit Info, Ukraine's uh, unit, credit report, and to score that for US lenders who use Nova Credit's credit passport. Um, it's a really interesting one. I mean, there's uh, well over a half a million Ukrainian refugees have taken uh, across the UK, US, Canada, and I know a number of other places as well. Uh, and they were expecting hundreds of thousands of more people to be uh, arriving on these shores uh, shortly. I mean, the, the Nova credit guys seem to be really sort of switched on on this stuff because, again, I know we were talking about uh, central bodies should step in and blah, blah, blah. But like credit building setups around it and the uh, access to credit across geographical boundaries is bloody hard, isn't it? So they've sort of built this Rosetta Stone piece in the middle, which is pretty impressive, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And I think this isn't just about giving lenders access to someone's credit history so they can say yes or no if you want credit. It's so much bigger because a credit check is the difference between you getting that flat that you want to rent or it's the difference between you get passing a check to be employed by someone and so i think we really underestimate the power right now at least of credit scores and credit history the amount of 
we have such movement within, like across the world, and that's not just due to war base. Like we're we're just a globalization magnet. Where there's sweeps of people moving to and fro, and somehow you could move here, even from France, and you wouldn't have a credit history. So I think they're they're making a really important step here, and also from a you know a political sense, the the war is not winding down anytime soon, and we do really need to make accommodation for people who are seeking refuge. And I think this is. It would be great. I I think we've we talk about this HSBC announcing um, some international credit history checks. I think it's really important that we're seeing more big banks and providers stepping up to support um, people in need. Yeah, this is a you know this is a really big issue, um, and has prevented fintechs from scaling overseas in the credit space or going to different markets just because each country has very different sets of credit bureaus, different data available. You know, some people have, and I'm talking on the business context, uh, some people have companies, you know, in the UK we have companies house, they have registries, filing, sometimes it's public, sometimes it's private. It's it's really difficult, which is why you saw in the kind of lending space and consumer and business, most of the companies, most of the fintech companies that started stayed in one geography or one or two geographies. They were not able to go international as fast as payments companies. Uh, and that's a big part of it is is having the right data to be able to build a model. Um, so so anything that means that you can port. I know in this context we're talking about consumers like individuals. Anything um, anything that can help to to translate or um, increase coverage will be will be massive and very very helpful. And and I you know there are a bunch of fintechs I think started by immigrants in the UK to service immigrant immigrants. I think Moniz maybe I'm trying to think. I think Moniz started because they realized that sort of i can't remember whether it was eastern europeans or south africans or people were moving to london and couldn't get a mobile phone couldn't get a bank account and they that's that was their first customer base so so definitely a big big problem and you raise such a good point there just i i just find credit scoring in its current form is so like it's still so archaic and we've seen like a real push of customers who are thinking about algorithmic credit scoring or or different ways to assess someone's financial prowess, like Canopy, that open banking platform for renters and how they use open banking in a different way. And I'm I'm just, I think the credit score itself, we're so focused on the score and like, like oh, you need to pass the credit check and not like, what does it mean? Like, what? how do we truly define like financial wellness or what we're looking to score by that? And I, I think there is there's a lot of room still to create a more well-established way to for us to all be on the same page about it. Because even within the UK, we've got so many different types of scores that different providers use for different things. And even within some credit companies, like they'll have multiple different scores, affordability, creditworthiness, like what do these things even mean? And I think you know, products are changing. It's not your classic credit card and your current account. It's, you know, it's buy now, pay later. It's Monzo Flex. They're, it's so different. And we need to think about a better way to assess how to lend to people and also how to check on people's finances. Yeah. I guess in this instance, it's, it's to your point, it's sort of access. But I guess in that broader, you know, what's that number? You, are, you almost only need to know about what the number is when you need to know what the number is. And if you need to know what the number is it's probably too late to solve it for the thing you so know, which true. is problematic isn't it you know because you're sort of almost in a uh, if everything's fine 
you never have to learn this. If, if you're at the point where you actually mm. need to learn it, then you're probably in a place where you don't know actually how to solve that problem, which is a, it's not a good spiral to be in, is yeah. it? Yeah, and that, that's exactly the point. Like, if you are just looking for access to, to something, a mobile phone, do I need your number? Do I really need it right now? Do I need it for employment? Or am I really asking something else about your finances? And, and what is that? And can I ask it more effectively? And those that's the kind of question you should be asking, not just, oh, can I see your credit score? Like, what does it even mean? Like, mine was bad because my my mum's home address doesn't have a street name. And so when I was living at home as a student, it was like, mm, she has no home address. And that was it. That was my credit score went down for like years until I was like, mum, I can never put that I'm living in Yorkshire anymore. Sorry, bye. And then I moved to London. You see, that's <laughs> incredible to think that, you know, that, that this part of the industry is so ripe for innovation in the fact that the the way the big four kind of um, you know, credit reporting agencies differentiate from themselves is the fact that, oh, sorry, we only take data from this element and we only take data from that element. And if the person, if the organization that's calling us is, you know, calling us, it doesn't matter if they've got better information on you. We're not going to go talk to them. The, you know, the fact that there is no cross-pollination of data across those those sources is fascinating. And, uh, you know, as you said, can lead to some really absurd situations like the fact that just because your, you know, your mum's house didn't have a, a street name, that could mean that you can't get a property. Like, what what world, what age are we living in? I don't know, man. I think I think that's just a cover story. Like, yeah. <laughs> it was it was something else. Yeah, no, there's a I... dark history there, but <laughs> just not go into it. But I do. I think that there is like a turning point. Like, you know, open banking came out in what 2017. We're only now starting to see people do something really interesting with it. And even then, it's like table stakes. And I, I feel like we're going to start to see some real shifts from these data led companies and the bureaus, especially because as we're starting to push into, you know, machine learning and AI models, like what does that actually mean for how we think about and process data? And so I actually think this is a really interesting space to watch from both in like a domestic sense but also that international sense on how how we think about consumers' data differently. So I, I think it's like this Nova credit story. Back to the actual story we're talking about. <laughs> you know, it's, I think it's just the start of, of some really important changes. And I, I think it's the why it's so interesting like or so good, I should say, to talk about is like it's just relevant and it's providing so much value for a really underserved group of customers, which, you know, we don't often get to see that because it's not commercial or it's not profitable for us to go for the, the underbanked. This is this shows that it's worthwhile. Yeah, I mean, I know you'd sort of touched on monies earlier on, though. I think they, they did a good job of uh, things are only not profitable if you do them in the wrong way. Right. So actually monies prove that actually you can kind of make any type of customer profitable if your cost of serve is low enough isn't it so it i mean it it opens up the world doesn't it but in this instance i guess with nova it's weird that we're seeing you know a, a it's taken an organization like them to step in to create something like this rather than it being you know something that's facilitated through uh you know government parties or whatever you know it's uh there must have been a lot of people left to their own devices quite quickly and that's uh it's not a great place to be definitely i think in the industry Everyone thought that open banking, I think everyone, open banking seems to be the best way forward because everyone has a bank account and that's kind of like a one source of truth uh, rather than looking at what you, for example, spend on in Sainsbury's or something like that, you know, like um, I think that there's a, there's definitely, but the, just the adoption needs to get bigger because for, for many, well, everyone talks about open banking and everyone likes talking about open banking, but on the ground we see that it's not really 
widespread yet. It's still just a lot of words and not not a lot of data being being uh, piped. Yeah, a lot of people just saying open what? Like it just <laughs> no one knows what it is outside this industry. I'm sure. Yeah, there's a whole there's a whole podcast on that. We'll come back to that at some <laughs> point, uh, Doug. But uh, all right, moving on. Uh, but one that, a story that we picked up over in the Guardian, but it was covered in a number of places as well. HSBC fined fifty seven million for serious, as it was described, deposit protection failings. The bank has been fined by the Bank of England's financial. St- arm for failing to adequately protect customers in the event of banking collapse. Between 2015 and 2022, two UK subsidiaries of HSBC Holdings were found to not correctly identify 112 billion in deposits which were eligible for the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, so FSCS. Uh, HSBC lacked adequate systems and controls and governance necessary to enable FSCS to make prompt payments to depositors in the case of banking collapse, the PRA said. This is the second highest ever fine imposed by the UK regulator to uh, the PRA, the top being 87 million to Credit Suisse in July last year. Uh, This is an interesting one, isn't it? Because they're sort of, they're fined for doing a thing that didn't happen but not having an adequate process in place to deal with it if it did happen, which is, you know, it's it's a little, it feels harsh to me. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, like, can't we all be cool, guys? Like, this didn't happen, but I get, I get why, because essentially it would have sit outside of that. So, for example, if HSBC would have disappeared and ceased to exist, that 112 billion would have equally have ceased to exist, right? Or at least... Uh, was it up to 80,000 or something would have been protected for each account per person. Therefore, a very large proportion of this money would have de- disappeared, wouldn't it? So, uh, I mean, it's uh, does it seem harsh to you, Rachel? Or? Well, it's funny. We were actually, a few episodes ago, we were talking about um, SVB and a run on the banks and like how we can regulate because social media spreads and people move really quickly now. And I think this is what it looks like to regulate against something like that. This is the prevention tactic. And I think what's important here is like HSBC were fully compliant and they're like, yeah, fair enough. Because what this wasn't, they weren't fine because, oh, this thing has gone wrong, to your point. They were fine because you can't show me that you're ready for this. And so if something actually happened, what does that mean? And I think for someone like HSBC, I'm not saying fines are every day, but big big banks do come across these fines from the regulator and, and they factor that into their operating model. And so I think it is harsh, yes, but also HSBC are massive, so slightly less harsh. And what you would hope from something like this is just it's that slap on the wrist to be like, yeah, we just need to pull our socks up and get the process in place. I think this on a smaller fintech neobank institute would be would be crippling. And so I think there's just at this scale, I think it's fine. But in, in smaller scales, it's, you know, helping people understand what they the protections they need to have in place for people's money. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, if Andrew Bailey knocked on our door and was like, David, we need £57 million for that thing. That didn't happen. That might have happened, but didn't happen. I'll be like, dude, that seems really unfair. You know? Yeah. Like, but, but also, I mean, HSBC sort of saved the day a little bit with Silicon Valley Bank, didn't they? So you can't sort of ask them to take on a bunch of risk and then, you know, I nearly said be dicks, but I can't, <laughs> quite, I can't be uh, accusing the Bank of England of being dicks, can I? But, but Doug, Anyhow, what do you think on this one? Is it is it harsh or do you think it's fair? It's is the rules the rules and therefore, you know, the matter how big you are, small you are, you get a you know, you get it in the neck if you've done it wrong. Yeah, I think I mean I think you know, look, banking is heavily regulated. Uh there are clear rules. Um there's benefits from being a bank. Uh, you know, during COVID, the banks benefited from being able to borrow 
a lot of money at very cheap rates from the Bank of England. So there's clear benefits. Um, that means that you have to adhere to the regulations and, and it's pretty black and white. So, you know, I think, uh, I think it's fair enough. That's my view. Doug. Yeah. To kind of echo that, um, you know, to go back to the very basics of why you would deposit money into a bank is to know that it would be safe. And, you know, just because the success of this bank, you know, it, it doesn't marry up, but it, yeah, it does does you know is the main reason after of this organization i'm depositing my money in this bank so that you keep it safe and you can earn interest of it but then suddenly if you're caught out not fulfilling that you know there's a customer experience angle that isn't isn't you know addressed almost here but then also if i was better at maths i'd like to know what the differential between what it was 112 billion in deposits compared to 85 million you know, I wonder what you know the difference you know fractionally of that fine is proportional to how many deposits they had messed yeah. up. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, it, it, I sort of feel like this though. I mean, it would have if HSBC had gone under, we'd have far bigger things to worry about. You know what I mean? But equally, uh, if it had gone under, and essentially this was a somebody didn't check the box they should have checked, there would have been a whole legal thing. And, you know, this money would have had to have been recovered. It would have just took a crazy amount of time through courts and blah, 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 right? So it would have made an amazing documentary. We all would have featured. It would have been great. But, you know, I think almost the, you know, the result of this is that they're going to probably hire another person to check the box, aren't they? Well, this is it. Literally, they didn't have a person to check the box. One, the PRA said HSBC failed to assign a senior manager to the resolution processes required in the event of a banking failure. So they literally just didn't have the person to be like, yeah, if something goes wrong, I'll, I'll put my hand up. And Can you imagine that's... being that guy? That's like the guy, it's like death <laughs> at the back. It's like, just waiting. We, yeah, are we in a crisis yet? Can I press the button? I mean, a really long holiday, though, hopefully for yeah. you. I think, but they, this is the stuff that, you know, with banking, like you're you're moving 100 miles now. You don't always like, you don't always check everything. And, and this is the point that actually, this is the one thing you can't not check because we're trying to protect ourselves from those incidents and having the right skill set there if something does go wrong, like, that is a that's a capability you just need to have because I think in a startup like you're all ready for everything to go wrong at any given time and you're all like right I'm I'm ready whatever bug is going to hit me at 6am I'll be there whereas in banks it's like oh like you know we can be a little you, you can almost forget the impact of your work when I when I worked at Barclays we were often like you know we don't we're not doctors it's not the end of the world and that's true like we're not doctors and we shouldn't treat ourselves more importantly but well, you bank, the flip you might side bank is, doctors though yeah, you bank doctors and you bank people who go to doctor and like your people's money is important and yeah. you should you should keep that in mind every day you turn up to work and every process that you you see and if you see something that's like oh that's not quite right oh, I'll come back to you later no no you you go back to it now and you make sure that culture is brought back into banking and I think this is to me that's what this regulation signifies to be like anyone who's just like looked twice at something look three times and do something about it like that's I think that's what we talk about when we're talking about changing the fabric of financial services I feel like you've said that too many times and now I've added to that today <laughs> but, it, but this is what we mean it's be mindful about what we're doing in banking not just about the products and services we're creating 100% it's um 
intent is a big thing in that, isn't it, as well, in terms of where you sort of get to, like, why are you going to work every day and what does that mean? But uh, I feel like we could talk about this one for a long time, but there was a <laughs> bunch of other stories that we probably uh, won't do service to in terms of their impact, but we probably should talk to. So Big Click Energy, a quick look at the clickworthy news this week. Uh, first up, Rachel, do you want to cover the first one of these? Yeah, mine's actually quite sad, um, but I think there's a positive note maybe coming off the end of it. Um, so this one's from Reuters. So PayPal to reduce global workforce by 9% in 2024. So this is the latest in one of the tech giant's redundancy rounds that we've seen this year and last. According to a letter from its CEO, Alex Chris, PayPal are planning to cut around 2,500 jobs this year. Affected staff are expected to have been notified by the time this podcast airs. Um, in a quote from Chris, we are doing this to right-size our business, allowing us to move with the speed needed to deliver for our customers and drive profitable growth. PayPal's shares saw a mild drop of 0.13% on the day of the announcement. And perhaps a sign of the trend in the industry, blockchain and payments firm Block are also laying off 10% of their staff. And so, you know, in this round, we're seeing employees from engineering, R&D being cut, um, we're starting to see some statuses come on LinkedIn, but this isn't the first round of cuts they've had. So last year they cut around 2,000 employees as well. But I think it's unsurprising. The biggest threat to some of the payments companies that we're seeing out there is actually Apple as they're starting to steal some of this wallet share. And so it's really important that existing companies in the space, new competitors are, are really focusing on a business that drives change. And we see with startups all the time, it's about profitable growth. It's not about technology that's underpinned by huge swathes of teams and complex processes. It's actually about a much more efficient process. And, and that's exactly what they're doing. And another quote from Chris says, specifically across our organization, we need to drive more focus and efficiency, deploy automation, consolidate technology, reduce complexity, all the things you kind of see in a VC uh, pitch tech. And so I think it's it's sad to see more redundancies. This is a really tough environment for a, a lot of people at the moment, and my heart goes out to them. But also, I think it's a necessary step for some of the larger, previously agile movers as, as they try and get a little bit leaner in 2024 and moving forward. So fingers crossed and, and all our love out to um, the PayPal employees who got some bad news this week. Yeah, for sure. I, d I really don't like that right sizing. I, I feel oh. like it it's um uh, it dehumanizes the change. Do you know what I mean? And uh, it feels like it's one of the ones that's sort of almost sort of talking to uh, investors rather than like people. And uh, it's not a, it's not a nice way of doing it. I'll be honest with you. So anybody that is affected by that uh, in PayPal, and this is happening with a bunch of other places as well. Eleven FS are hiring like crazy. I'm not, <laughs> not lying. Like we need a lot Call of people. Us. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> please do get in touch. All right. Uh, another one. Oh god, you guys again. FinTech Finance. We picked this one up. Uh, <laughs> Go Henry urges government to prioritize financial education for primary age at the Education Select Committee inquiry. So Go Henry has been championing improved financial education in schools since the launch of its Making Money Count petition last year. The petition has now over 10,000 signatures and the CEO, Louise Hill, gave oral evidence to the... Oral evidence? What a weird way of wording that one. Uh, she said some stuff to the Education Select Committee stating, now is the time for the government to take action and take seriously to prioritise the practical money skills children need to navigate real-world financial services successfully, said Hill. Uh, Go Henry is also a member of the Centre for Financial Capability, backing the charity push for every child to be supported to develop the skills necessary to navigate the critical financial decisions in later life. Uh, I mean, I really 
really cannot back this more. Like it's, it is insane the stuff that kids get taught at school and that this isn't on it. Like it's just madness. And then we wonder why kids don't understand or adults don't understand financial terms or, you know, how to deal with these things. I mean, it's difficult because, you know, we're a nation where the level of mathematical capability is quite low as well. So adding more into it, but I can't help but feel this should be something that's squeezed into pretty much every curriculum for every child, uh, everywhere, not just here. Uh, do you want to give quick thoughts on this one, Rachel, before we move on? Yeah, I mean, I almost wonder if by bringing, like, bringing something more realistic, you could make maths stick a little bit more. I remember, like, the best maths lessons I saw in the UK educa education systems were the ones where you're like, and let's tie this back to something that you understand. And so I think it's a huge gap. It's too late to be talking to people about tax and credit cards when when they're already having to worry about it. So I'd love to see more of this and, and making it human for for people so we can just break it down to what actually matters. I'm pretty sure in schools, if they started teaching all of these equations in V-Bucks, like all the children would get them. Like, you know I mean? It's like those kids will do anything for V-Bucks right now. It's kind of crazy. It might I just don't be know what V-Bucks are. Do you know? It's Sorry. The, it's the underlying <laughs> currency that powers Fortnite. So it's like, uh, mm. it's kind of, it's kind of crazy. They, the kids, kids love this stuff. It's weird. <laughs> uh, anyway, now it is time for something a little bit different. It's the and finally section of the show. Uh, look at something a little bit more offbeat from the news this week. Uh, we have a bit of a weird one. We picked it up from the BBC. This is Tom Holland's, the Avengers guy, Spider-Man, right? Uh, bonus was accidentally sent to Tom Hollander by mistake. So Tom Hollander, the star of The White Lotus, I haven't actually watched that show, I'm not sure if anybody else has, uh, had an unexpected surprise recently after noticing a bonus check from The Avengers had been accidentally paid to him instead of the real Spider-Man, Tom Holland. Speaking to the late night show hosted by Seth Meyer, Hollander explained that they shared the same agent with Spider-Man and believes that there was a bit of a mix-up on their accounts due to their names. Though Hollander did not reveal the amount, he did hint that it was a cool seven-figure sum. On the mix-up, Hollander said, it's in non-visual context, I'm mistaken for him all of the time, talking to utility companies or when I'm introduced to somebody who gets then very excited, then very confused, and then sadly very disappointed. Uh, in case they were concerned, we can confirm the error has been rectified and Holland now actually does have his bonus. Phew. I mean, it sort of goes a little bit back to that point we were making earlier on around identity, right? This shouldn't be possible. You shouldn't be able to make these types of mistakes, should you? You know, either in terms of authentication of who you're sending the money to or that the end point is actually who they say they are as well, right? So, um, you know, funny mess up of millions of pounds going in the wrong direction or, I mean, this is quite a, if this was a, uh, you know, a, a person getting, a, a, I don't know, a distribument of uh, funds from their mother dying you know it's going to be a little more sinister isn't it you know I'm I can at least be thankful that you won't send my bonus to anyone else in the company because my last name is very distinctive and I am the only Rachel that's but true I do I bizarre like I don't even know how for a seven figure sum you could just be like yeah yeah, yeah Tom Hollander yeah yeah fine 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 Holland Hollander same one like what, who was transferring this money and do they still have their job? Yeah, yeah. just send it to one of them and let them figure it out. It's an interesting <laughs> one to go to, isn't it? Uh, yeah, we, we don't have too many troubles with Rachel's, but I reckon all of the Jamie's uh, at yeah. 11FS right now are probably in trouble as soon as we're hiring so many of them. But uh, Doug, Anu, is this like uh, is this like a ha-ha moment or is it like, is it a bit, is it a bit bad to this? I, th I mean, I actually checked with my team and I think 
legally, if you do get money that's not correctly supposed to go to you, you're not allowed to spend it. Um, you can kind of dispute that it should be yours, but I think you're, I think it's actually criminal to spend money that you've come to unjustly. Um, so I don't know whether, I mean, I don't know whether that's right, but, um, I don't know whether he would have been able I to mean, spend se it. I mean, seven figure sum, I'd have had it in small notes out of the bank straight away <laughs> and I'd be in, uh, I'd be in Jamaica right yeah. now. You, somebody else will be hosting this podcast, you know, Doug, what do you think? Is this, uh... I mean, A, I got really bad advice and I, I should have been an actor. But I think this is what we're learning. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what do you I think? Mean, it, yeah, again, yeah, as you said, it, it just harks right back to why are we not just paying into direct accounts to direct accounts and using, for instance, ID cards. But I, David, are you from, is it Norfolk um, or from around that area? I am, yeah. Um, I, I seem to remember in the news, a guy got, got sent 110K or something. Um, and then Barclays told him he should keep it. And then Im immediately he was in big, big trouble because they'd obviously just, they'd again, it done even worse. They'd given him advice, the wrong advice. Um, and then apparently they took more money out than he'd actually spent. So it is a, it's a, it's a crazy one, isn't it? Because you've done nothing wrong and you're put in a life-changing position. Um, but maybe I, I'm just sounding like a horrible person. You should be moral and you should give it back. But I don't know. I mean, it comes back to that. It, look, if HSBC can be fined fifty millions, and it's like somebody can probably cough up a thing. But uh, but anyway, very depressing. Uh, you know, at the end of it, Spider Man's getting millions of pounds for doing cool stuff, and <laughs> that's the moral of I think this entire show, quite frankly. But uh, <laughs> all right. On that note, it does wrap up this show. Thank you so much for our guests for joining us. Where can people learn a little bit more about you and the cool things that you're up to? Annie, we'll start with you. Um, our website, career.co. Uh, my LinkedIn, I do post quite regularly on LinkedIn. Um, uh, yeah, those are two probably the, the best places to hear more about what we're doing at Korea. Very good. Doug, where can people learn more? Um, definitely uh, catch me on LinkedIn, Doug McKenzie um, or Dougie Fintech over on Twitter. Um, and obviously, uh, FF News, where you can catch all the rest of our stuff. Very, very cool. Rachel, where can people learn more about you? Um, find me on LinkedIn, I'm Rita Rachel Pondian, or if not, uh, catch me around at 11FS. Very cool. As for me, I'm always lurking on LinkedIn. So find me over there. And thank you so much for listening. If you want to join the conversation, head over to social media, pretty much all of them at this stage, or email us on podcasts with an S at the end of it at 11 Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Goodbye.